Hello and welcome to Unpleasant Movies, the podcast that is dedicated to harsh and unrelenting cinema. My name is Svara Ogur. And my name is Thomas Simulsen Balmbra. And today we are discussing the 1982 animation movie The Plague Dogs. And as always, we will be talking extensively about the plot and themes of the film. So we recommend that you have seen it already, unless of course you don't mind spoilers. So this film is directed by Martin Rosen, who also directed Watership Down, the animated movie. And it's based on a book by Richard Adams, who also wrote the book Watership Down. It stars John Hurt as Snitter, a terrier, Christopher Benjamin as Rofe, mixed breed Labrador Mutt, James Bolan as The Todd, it's a fox, Nigel Hawthorne as Dr. Boycott, and Patrick Stewart. In uh, a small part. Yeah, as the mayor, a 40-year-old young Patrick Stewart <laughs> in his early part of his uh, film career. Yeah, he does seem like he's always been at least 40. <laughs> yeah. I remember watching him in I, Claudius, which is from the late 70s, I think, a BBC production. And even then, he's already balding and uh, it's like he was never young. Yeah. John Hurt is also in that film, actually. And John Hurt is amazing. Yeah. Some great actors in this. Some great voice work. Yeah. So Richard Adams, he's kind of a iconic author known for these tales of talking animals that are quite serious. They're kind of kids' books, but for slightly older kids. They have serious themes. They have elements of violence and politics going on. And he tends to have a, a little bit of his own mythology in there as well. He's kind of a, an interesting guy. Yeah. yeah, especially Watership Down has some very like involved mythology. It's yeah. very interesting. And I'd say that, you know, as far as books about talking animals go, he's probably some of the most serious literature that is in that vein. Uh, Definitely. It's, it's quite interesting. And um, I think he wrote The Plague Dogs just about five years before the animation movie was made. 78 was the book and 82 is the film. Right, right. So it was quite contemporary with the writing of the book. Yeah. So the story uh, involves two dogs that run away from this horrible uh, experimentation center on animals. And it's from the viewpoint of the animals. And they basically run into a national park reserve in the Lake District. And they try to survive and fend for themselves. After a while, they run into a fox and trouble ensues. Yeah. They're escapees from this experimental laboratory, doing surgery and physical tests on animals, uh, survival tests, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Turns out they're also doing tests on the bubonic plague, which is known to the public initially. Yeah. That's kind of a, a closed section. It doesn't really involve the dogs directly, but that comes up as a theme later on when a newspaper journalist uh, discovers there's a connection. It's sort of a scandal. Yeah. It becomes this scandal and some politicians get involved yeah. and there's a, a big hunt for these plague dogs. They've not been in contact with this section of the experimental lag. But anyway, so they escape. And they kind of team up with this slightly shady, but also very helpful fox character, the Todd. And uh, Really interesting character. Yeah, he talks in this gaudy accent. Yeah, talks uh, with a lot of flavor in his idiomatic accent. Yeah, Newcastle, I think it's called Tyneside English. And like initially he seems like a bit of a shady character. Mm. And he sort of is, but he's a fox. Yeah. So like the basic premise and the basic story is really simple. Yeah. It's almost like 
primeval. It's it's mm. very like very broad strokes and very primal story. Mm. But I think the interesting thing about the story is sort of the way it's portrayed and the, the viewpoint of the animals. Like for instance, this experimentation center just seems so nightmarish, so absolutely horrible, mm. like something out of Joseph Mengele's prison camps or mm. something. And the animals, you know, since it's from their perspective, they don't understand it. It's just pain and suffering yeah. that they don't manage to wrap their heads around. And of course, Snitter, he has this operation on his head. So he's sort of muddled in his brain additionally. So there's this sort of psychological jumble of stuff that's incredibly intense. Yeah, they both have kind of human psychology, I think you can say. Snitter used to have a human master who he was very fond of, but the man died partially due to his actions. I mean, he was walking on the road and his master saw a car coming and he shoved the dog away and he got run over. And so he has a lot of guilt concerning his master's death. Yeah, but he also has a lot more experience with the human world. Whilst Rofe is probably, you know, brought up in this type of laboratory environment and he has a lot of, I would say, aggressive post-traumatic stress. He has a, a strange relationship to all humans. He's very suspicious and, and angry. He has an, a, quite an aggressive side to him. Yeah, no wonder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> so mean... being tortured day in and day out. I mean, we could talk about the opening sequence, which yeah. is, really involves him and is incredibly, incredibly horrible. So before we start talking extensively about the plot of this movie, it should be noted that the story has, shall we say, ruthless descriptions of violence against animals. I mean, the, the film itself doesn't show so much violence directly, but... Uh, but it's sort of about the mistreatment yeah. of animals, yeah. so... So if you find that unpleasant, you might... Don't listen to this. Yeah. It's not excessively grotesque in its depiction, but we will be talking about some of the laboratory experimentation and stuff. The film starts... Beautifully, it has the title screens and you can just hear some water spluttering sounds and some dog whining. And as the image comes into view, it's almost like experimental animation. You can see like the lines in the water waving. It's really beautiful, actually. And the camera kind of tilts up and we just get a, a second or a moment and you see these humans standing over looking down. You just see the hands and the faces and then you have a hard cut to Ralph in the water just bursting up from the surface and trying to breathe and he's swimming and the humans are commenting that he's been there for a while and he's trying to swim. He's clearly struggling. Yeah, at the very end of his energy and he starts to drown and falls to the bottom of the pool and we have a bit of a fade out and then a hook comes and pulls him up and he's uh, revived as the men talk about the procedure. Yeah, there's clearly some experiment going on. Yeah, and they're very casual about it. It's obviously something they've done before and that they're going to do again. They're actually talking about the next time they'll be testing it on him and other animals. It's a very hard way to start a movie. Yeah, it's what an opening sequence. I mean, start with a bang, but this is just, I mean, it's raw. It's rough. Yeah. The film itself is pretty stark, both visually and thematically. It doesn't really pull punches, no. I would say. Though it's not excessively grotesque, but it is, it's willing to show you the uncomfortable. Yeah, it's not grotesque to be grotesque, but it's mm. grotesque to tell you the story. Mm. Uh, and the story is grotesque. Yeah. And like the color palettes, and it's all very muted yeah. and very raw and rough and down to earth way but what makes it very interesting to me is the viewpoint of the animals and sort of the contrasting of their knowledge and understanding with how they view the humans because the humans are almost like just forces just bodies like they don't truly understand them they're sort of embodied hurt in a way 
like the white coats mm. and the hands, almost like a Tom and Jerry cartoon. You never yeah. see the, the face as much. Well, you, you do see the... see the faces, but most of the time you see like from the knees down and the hands doing actions. Yes, because mostly you see the legs and the hands and mm. what they do and handle like guns mm. and sort of grab the animals and stuff like that. Mm. Sometimes you see the faces, but I love how the faces are sort of bland mm. and sort of nondescript almost. Their eyes are black. Yeah. Because you're viewing it from the dog's perspective. Yeah. And I love that. You really get that sense of estrangement from them as a species. It's definitely subjectively placed with the animals. And you do have human voices throughout the movie. These bits from the radio and... Uh, a lot of voiceovers. Conversations so. between politicians and newspaper people and people who are working at the lab. Yeah. So their presence is felt more like in the ether. Yeah, it sort of mixes between diegetic and non-diegetic sound. Mm. And, and it's sort of surreal. Like a lot of the movie feels a bit surreal. There's a lot of dream or sort of psychosis sequences with Snitter particularly. And I love the way it all interweaves in this very dreamlike sort of nightmarish world of all these humans that you don't like they're very unpredictable. Mm. You don't know if they're going to harm you. If, mm. uh, and, you know, Snitter, he has this sort of image of his master. Mm. You know, if we only find the master, things will be good. He'll take care of us. Of course, that proves very difficult. And almost every human they meet have some sort of reaction that is unexpected. Mm. And the animals are just trying to get a grip on the situation and understand and, and sort of get food and, and warmth and, and stuff. Yeah, they want to escape the suffering, which is quite intense. Snitter, he's been operated on his head and there's a initially there's a cap on top of his head but later on in the film he managed to scratch it off and you see that there's a big cut and he's been shaven yeah, in a operation circle scar and, yeah. of sorts and it looks like there's been quite an intensive brain surgery done on him and I can't remember if they've talked about it in the film but in the book they discuss that they're trying to kind of merge the objective and the subjective consciousness of the dog to see yeah, if he can they talk about it in the movie too yeah. well they would talk about flipping the subjective and yeah. the objective and they had this brain surgery on the dog to sort mm. of do that and the scar looks horrible and mm. there's a lot of like very distasteful visual imagery even though like a lot of the direct violence isn't shown in a lot of ways, like we discussed mm. with Mikael Hanneke, like mm. you mentioned earlier before we started recording. A lot of the violence isn't shown directly, but even still you see a lot of the effects of it. And it, the effect is very harrowing. Yeah, I think it is an interesting comparison to be made to particularly early Hanukkah films where the focus on actions with hands performing, you the, know... The body. Yeah. I'm reminded of Benny's video yeah, in particular, the murder scene there. And The Seventh Continent, when he's very focused on actions by hands and... You don't see the violence directly, but you see the consequences of violence. Yeah. And that might be graphic, but the action itself isn't shown so much. No, but I think you get a lot of the same effect mm. by just not showing the precise moment. And a lot of what we talk about in unpleasant movies is mm. often like the embodiment of pain and suffering yeah. and the objectification of suffering mm. and of just bodies being disconnected from the intellectual aspect of mm. how we go about our lives. And in this movie, it's particularly noteworthy because you're not viewing it from a human perspective at all. And a lot of the movies we talk about how the director chooses to objectify the humans or whatever. Mm. But in this movie, it's like it's from the viewpoint of an animal. Mm. And it makes it very interesting. 
And I think it sort of separates itself from a lot of the movies we talk about because this is sort of a traditional animation movie, sort of ostensibly for kids. Yeah. But it's hard to imagine kids loving this movie. Yeah, I mean, just to put a bit of context, right? As I said, uh, Richard Adams, particularly the generation before us, I think he was quite a, a noteworthy author. I was actually... Um, this doesn't really happen so much in Norway, but I was standing on the bus and reading Plague Dogs and this really old guy came up to me and said that this was a really good book and I should read Watership Down, <laughs> which was kind of a, a nice exchange. But yeah, my impression was that our parents' generation, they have quite a strong connection because he does take a lot of pretty serious themes and talk about them to, you know, young adults or kids. Yeah, I, um, I know a lot of friends of mine or especially older friends of mine mm. that have seen, especially Watership Down mm. when they were younger. It made an impact on them to the point of a lot of them don't want to rewatch it mm. and just have a lot of horrible memories about, you know, blooded rabbits with yeah. uh, brutal teeth. It's kind of scary imagery also with that, like being fat rabbit who has the evil eye and he's right. terrorizing other rabbits and it's kind of fascist and yeah. stuff. Yeah, but to me, I think this movie is even worse. So Watership Down is kind of an easier sell because it's kind of like, I guess, a Disney movie with blood and serious themes, right? And, and there's a sort of catharsis at the end yeah, like there's a absolutely yeah. and it has these magical elements it has this it was a hit song uh, with uh, Garfunkel wasn't it Bright Eyes yeah and it has a more mystical sort of element to it yeah so it was a, a bit of a pop culture phenomenon totally and the play dogs is a bit more self-serious in a way it doesn't it's not as whimsical if you can put it like that and as I said, Martin Rosen, he directed both films. And I think much to the surprise of the producers of Warship Down, that was a big success. So he got to do basically what he wanted to with Plague Dogs. And he took it in this very stark and quite brutal approach. And, you know, it, it felt miserably because there wasn't really an audience ready for this type of film. And it kind of ended his directing career, which I think is a damn shame. It's a damn shame, but what a bold movie to go out on. A very bold move, and it really is a beautiful film, and extremely well made just on a filmatic level, I think. He has a very good instinct for film, and he did some more producing later on. Um, he actually co-produced Woman in Love, that Ken Russell film, and... Um, He's also been part of the production of the recent Watership Down miniseries, the Netflix one. So, I mean, he's still working with film, I guess, but it's a shame that kind of his directing career ended here because this is a really good film. And, uh, yeah, beautiful craftsmanship too. Yeah. Like the animation is really good and the, the small nuances mm. of the dogs and the animals, mm. it's so lifelike. You really feel like they're dogs. It's not like a Disney movie where they just are basically humans, like giant furry figures. Mm. In this movie, you, you really feel like they're animals. Like you see the dogs pissing and sniffing mm -hmm. trees and like they do all this very natural dog-like movement. And, and even more so than Watership Down, I think, it's less cartoony. It goes for a very realist style and, you know, the landscapes are so beautifully painted. They work with colour and it almost has a sublime quality. It's quite cold and stark, but very detailed. And the lighting is beautiful, really. Uh, yeah, but it really captures something about the landscapes yeah. there and the moors and the lakes and stuff like that. It's also extra fascinating to me because lately I've been reading some books that my mother is really into or, oh, yeah. or read when she was younger. And it's a book series called All Creatures Great and Small. Mm. And they made a couple of TV mm. shows about it and stuff. And it's, it's very like, heartwarming stories about a veterinary, a country veterinary. Yeah, I uh, think I saw the recent series. 
Yeah, it's a remake of the old BBC yeah. series, which is probably a lot better. Mm. But I saw the remake and, you know, it's good. Yeah, it's, it's good. a light, entertaining watch. Yeah, and it's based on some very, like, nice, interesting books. Mm. And it's written by Afright, under the pen name James Harriet. And it's interesting because it's basically the same landscapes and it's about animals. So it deals with a lot of the same stuff. But even in that series, a lot of the sort of realities of country living, mm. the realities of sheep farmers or farmers dealing with animals, and stuff it is even in such a sort of comedic mode of storytelling mm. it's still quite stark and has some sad and brutal moments so i like how this movie seems to capture a lot of that just in visual imagery alone because the landscapes are quite lonely and like there's quite a bit of survival going on there like even among the humans mm. so a lot of them are really distraught when you know the dogs attack the sheep and it's their livelihood like mm. that's what mm. they have to live on so it's no wonder they're sort of distressed and a lot of them are like really upset with the government who are running this facility you know even when the army comes in towards the end of the movie mm -hmm. you overhear some of the soldiers talking about like it's a damn shame these dogs don't deserve it it's the people running that research facility like they haven't been fed they're starving that is actually uh, patrick stewart's role the major he's commenting on this yeah and uh, it's beautiful you know he delivers those lines and yeah. it went right into my heart mm. but it's nice because it shows that the humans aren't just antagonistic there's a lot of variation there too but the dogs just don't understand it because of the way they're treated yeah so i guess i'll talk a little bit about the book which i read i hadn't read it before yeah, I haven't read it, so mm. it'll be interesting to hear. I have mixed feelings about the book. Partially, I think it's very good. It's quite a bit longer. I think this is a very good example of a great adaptation of book to film because Martin Rosen's cut out substantial parts and the stuff that it's cut out is stuff with the humans because there's a lot of plot in the book with people about the newspaper man, about politicians, about the lab workers and about rural society. He has a lot of characters that he goes into and he's very interested in talking about the politics about it, the hypocrisy of of media and science and that sort of stuff. And that is interesting. That is very interesting. He has a bit of a patronizing style, I think. In what sense? Is well, it like didactic or, or, or... Well, you know, a lot of his arguments and the things he's dealing with, I agree with and find very interesting. And, and it's not as if his characters aren't nuanced. And he has different perspectives that he shifts between and he has a lot of unreliable narratives and that sort of stuff. But he's not exactly subtle. Like the overall intentions are very clear. They don't leave much for you as a reader to interpret. And it's written kind of, you know, the narrative voice is so strong. I was thinking of how to formulate it. And imagine if Lord of the Rings was written in the mode of The Hobbit. It's not quite that. But I think he's probably quite influenced by Tolkien. He uses poems in a similar way and he's very invested in the landscapes. He wrote that stuff beautifully. Yeah, I've heard that comparison before, actually. And even directly references, he compares a character to Saruman in Orthanc. Nice. You know, amusingly, his origin as a writer is also not dissimilar from Tolkien. Warship Down was a story he told his young girls as they grew up and they were kind of convinced him that he had to write a book as Tolkien did with The Hobbit and his kids. And it kind of launched his career because that was a big success. And uh, Plague Dogs was his second book. And then he has some other books, Shard Dick, I think one is called. But he's a really interesting guy, but there's something a little bit self-satisfied about his critique, I think. It's very on the nose. 
and everything is very clearly in the service of his one voice. And the film kind of takes that stuff away mostly. It leaves the basics of the relationships of like, you have some of the feeling of like, there's some politicians, you have these voiceovers and the newspaper man. And in the film, it's actually a woman. It's a man in the book. Also, he, Richard Adams, he uses kind of these joke names like Dr. Boycott and Animosity. And <laughs> it, that's what I mean. It kind of reminds me a little bit of The Hobbit. That's also how Tolkien kind of wrote. He had these more like funny pun names. Yeah, but of course, that was like a direct write-up of a tale he told his children. Right. So there's a quite a modal difference when he goes into his own mm. sort of mythology. I guess I wish the book, he'd just taken one more step back and written it more for adults a bit. But on the other hand, he references a lot of literature and a lot of culture and stuff. I think probably for young people, it's great introduction to a lot of, you know, ideas and uh, thought fodder. So I don't mean to demean his literature at all, because parts of it is excellently written. And But I just think that the film manages to take the best of his writing and distill it into something that's very true to the themes that he's working with. Yeah, I got to say, watching the movie, I really like the way sort of the press and politicians and stuff worked in the movie, because it sort of it was on the periphery mm. of the main story. Mm. And I feel like I didn't need more of it at no. all. Yeah. It was the perfect amount yeah. for this story. And on the point of him being a bit like self-satisfied and a bit like not pedantic but i know what you mean but i feel like this movie is a lot more ambiguous yeah in its message mm. and a lot of it is just showing us the suffering of animals mm. and the senselessness of it to them which is both very interesting and something you very rarely if ever see done in this sort of yeah. fictionalized format it's pretty unique actually yeah that's what i really loved about this mm. movie and tied in with all these sort of visual poetic images mm. that are very stark and all these nightmarish sequences and it's all tied together very nicely yeah. and yeah. it sort of goes by sequences in the movie mm. and you sort of see day by day and it sort of jumps maybe a week or so and that's similar as, as the book it, it, it goes by date yeah and that works very well yeah. i think mm. in just showing the slow deterioration you know eventually you see their ribs and stuff yeah they're, not they're starving fed. they're starving mm. it's terrible to watch but the story is very compelling and you're always wondering like what's going to happen how are they going to get out of this mm. and you sort of feel like it might be a bad end to this movie <laughs> the ending is uh, quite interesting because it's different in the book and the film and as far as I understand, the script for the film and the production, because, I mean, it took a few years to make this film. It came out in 82, but the initial script for the film was made before the book was published. So the ending is a bit different, and it's closer to Richard Adams' initial ending, I think, because he had feedback from his editors. And uh, changed the ending? The editors uh, wanted a softer ending to the book. Right. And he does a kind of interesting thing. He brings in a couple of actual people, people he knew, what happens is the dogs are trying to escape the military and they jump into the water and they swim. And in the book, they're kind of talking about the Isle of Dogs, right. kind of as a reference to Isle of Man. And as they swim, they're about to drown. But then this boat comes with these people who Richard Adams knew who kind of pick up the dogs and they kind of revive them. And then Snitter's owner, who's not dead, but he's been picked up at the hospital by the newspaper man because he's kind of a good guy, bad guy, this newspaper person. Right. He's also the person who coins the term plague dogs and causes a lot of As ruckus. most newspaper men are creatures of opportunity. Definitely. You would say that about <laughs> Digby Driver, as he's called in the, in the book. Lynn Driver in the film, I think. I see. Anyway, so he's kind of 
given back to his original owner and there's a very safe and happy ending. Whilst in the film, there's none of that. They're swimming out towards this foggy water and they kind of disappear in the fog. And as the credits roll, we do see an island in the distance and the fog clears a bit, but it's very... It's a bit unclear. And also I love the rhyming of the opening sequence and Mm, the closing sequence with the water and the sort of fading, because Mm. it sort of fades in and fades out. I thought that was beautiful. I think the only thing that maybe bothered me a bit about the movie ending is Mm. that the talk about the Isle of Dogs and stuff, it just sort of comes out of nowhere. If they had maybe mentioned it earlier, I thought it would... Do they actually mention it in the film? Do they say Isle of Dogs? (coughs) They talk about an Isle of Dogs, yeah, Yeah. but I don't understand where it comes from because it's random at the end. But I think it works, and I Mm. think the ending is actually quite beautiful. It's very beautiful. And uh, I think the book ending sounds terrible. I'm not a fan of the book ending. Why would you just sort of throw away... I feel the ending is what makes it poignant. That's what I mean, that the adaptation just functions a lot better in terms of the themes and, as you say, the poetics of it. But of course, I understand, actually. I was reading a bit about Adams, and he's kind of influenced by Jung's theories. Carl Jung? Yeah. And water is kind of a central symbol of the unconscious for Jung. Oh. I'm not sure how that plays out thematically, really, but it's it's. I guess it's one of his interests. I mean, it's probably there mm. if you're looking for it. I don't have any particular fascination yeah. for that kind Maybe of symbolism. Maybe there's an interesting analysis to be had. I don't know. Like I like symbolism. I just don't feel the need to specify that water means the unconscious mind or whatever. I find that a bit. I don't think that's necessary for an interesting analysis of this movie. No, not at all. Um, like maybe like in the appendix of the book discussing this movie, <laughs> you, can, you can start talking about that. It's not central to the core of this sort of epic travel of these dogs. I'd also like to say like the sound design in this movie is so good. Oh yeah, it is. Just how they recorded the sounds, they're quite sharp and they're quite distinct and there's a coldness and... Yeah, it fits the landscape so well. Yeah. The sort of sharpness of sounds we would hear in a sort of barren landscape. Mm. It transforms it into something sort of weird and cold and distant, like you said. And it's beautiful. Like, the whole package is really nice. Mm. And I love the animation, too, like, Mm. because there's not a lot of outlines in the animation. Mm. It's sort of these color parts Mm. that are moving in very beautiful motion. It looks great. And it's not reminiscent of much else that I can think of, except, of course, Watership Down. Mm. But it's more distilled here. (laughs) It's interesting because Watership Down was animated in England initially. I think some of this is also done in England, but he brought over his team, or some of his team, to America, and they finished it in San Francisco, California. It's made between 79 and 82. And (laughs) there's a funny bit of trivia because there's a kind of famous animation guy called Brad Bird. You know, he directed The Iron Giant. With Vin Diesel? Yeah, he's the giant, is he? Yeah. yeah. And Incredibles. And he was actually fired from this movie. Oh, wow. And I saw an interview with Martin Rosen, and he couldn't recall why that was, because it was many years ago when he had this interview. But for some reason or another, Brad Bird was fired from this movie, but went on to have like this amazing career on his own. Though I think I prefer Martin Rosen's films. Yeah, I mean, The Iron Giant is more traditional sort of family. I think that's a good one, though. <clears throat> yeah, it is. But it's more of the tradition. It's a very good version yeah. of those traditional yeah. children's, you know, adventure movies. It has heart, definitely. This has heart and sorrow and suffering. Yeah. It's a very genuine and honest film, I think. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't give you any easy answers or any easy, you know, it asks a lot of questions and it really makes you feel 
Like it makes you face some of the stuff that goes on in the mm. world that mm. you might not think about or want to think about. And yeah. I think that's sort of one of the really good things that art can do is make you question some of the things you take for granted or aren't used to questioning. And yeah. this movie does it in a beautiful and very precise and cold way. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of what a lot of the films we're talking about here. It's, it's about broadening your horizons and using film's power of empathy and connection to trouble your perception of the world a bit and create new understandings, I think. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's a bit axiomatic and like an obvious truth that suffering can be great art and mm. you can learn a lot from great art. But I think... And I'm going to talk about this later because it's in my recommendations, mm. but there's a tooltip in a game that I'm going to recommend <laughs> okay. that uh, recommends that you don't use the save and load function because it's sort of a story generator. Mm. And if Luke's parents weren't killed mm. in the start of Star Wars, then you wouldn't have the same story mm. and it wouldn't be as interesting. And so I think suffering can be a very compelling way of getting your attention and making you focus on a story mm. because... It's essentially what creates like a good story. Suffering, you, you have to have some sort of, not necessarily, but I think it can be a very good way of making you face some stuff and making you interested in the story. Of course, Aaron Unpleasant movies, we talk about movies that really, really focus on that aspect of storytelling to a degree that most people would find very, very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. But that's also one of the reasons these movies stick with you, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, tragedy is part of everybody's life, right? And it should be a part of art as well. Dealing with it and examining it. And the lives of animals are often so hidden. Medical science is, of course, amazing, but it comes as a consequence. I mean, it's a price that we don't have to pay. Yeah. Somebody's paying for it. Somebody's paying for it. And I, it's interesting because there is a lot of discussion on it and philosophy and ethics mm. and stuff. Mm. And it's very difficult to talk about because mm. some of the sort of realizations you come through basic logic reasoning and stuff is that there is a lot of wrong treatment of animals in the world. And basically there's no real good reasoning for why we treat animals the mm. way we do. It's sort of something we have to avert our gaze a bit mm. uh, because there comes a lot of good through it, like in a utilitarian sense, like, mm. yeah, okay, there's a lot of suffering, but good comes from it. So sort of this deal with the devil mm. almost. So yeah, I mean, what are you going to do about it? Like, should we stop doing cancer? research on animals and maybe have a lot of people die as a consequence of it like it's a very difficult moral dilemma right and i love that about this movie it doesn't really point a finger it just shows you suffering that goes on in research all over the world constantly the book is a bit more finger pointery and this film really just works a lot with creating empathy with the animals and showing what their perspective would be like. I mean, the talking animals and they have, I guess there might be an argument about, you know, they have more human psychology than animal psychology. I don't know what the differentiation would be necessarily. But There is um, a lot of animal psychology in this movie too. Like, mm. I love, a lot of their behavior is so rooted in how dogs would behave mm. and not how humans would yeah. behave necessarily. Yeah. Like, they do have a lot of human psychology too, of mm. course, but there are a lot of animalistic nuances in it that mm. make it very pleasurable. And I think this movie works really well because there's a lot of show and not a lot of tell. Yeah. And as I gather from your reading of the book, then it's a lot more tell and a lot show, obviously. But I think this movie just works really well in the way it tells the story by just showing you what goes on 
and it's not very judgmental about it. There is no romanticizing. There is no easing the blow. There's just none of that. It cuts right to the bone of what it deals with. And it's very raw. Yeah, it's super raw. And I, we've discussed like some of the worst movies we watched. This rates pretty highly for yeah, me. Yeah, it does. It uh, does. Because of like, there's an innocence to animals. Mm. They don't have these sort of moral quandaries that humans do. And so we have a lot more responsibility, I think. Of course we do, but it's very difficult to be put face to face with that. Yeah, I mean, that's the idea of the mental state of animals being similar to a, a two-year-old human being. And I find it interesting that sort of comparison that because it's a very common comparison, but we judge everything by human metric. Yeah, and like, shouldn't animals have their own sort of worth? You know, it's kind of a weird thing to say almost, but even in like the worst circumstance, like say um, a horrible prison camp or in situations of torture, even if it's extremely unlikely, you can at least imagine a human being escaping those situations and getting a better life or starting a revolution. You know, there's there's no way to imagine an animal doing that. And if you're the sort who's, who's interested in animal rights, maybe you've seen some footage, maybe you've seen footage of like a cow escaping its imprisonment rights and you see like the desperation. You know, they do have the will to survive very strongly, but there's just no chance in hell. Like there's no way they can unionize yeah unionize <laughs> and you know they just no, they should animal farm isn't there like it's not gonna happen they're not gonna sadly we like humans have to sort of stand up for them or, or nobody is going to stand up for them mm. and this movie hit me kind of hard because lately i've been really trying to cut down on, on meat consumption and I, I just morally i i hate the idea of it but culturally and socially there's mm. just this sort of imperative to I don't know, like traditionally and st like there's a lot of elements going on into that. Mm. But yeah, it hit me pretty hard. Uh, I mean, I don't eat meat, but my idea is that, you know, better with a horrible ending than horrors without ending. And I, I certainly don't think that it's either realistic or necessary to have the idea that zero use of animal products. But I just think it should be more expensive like someone's paying for this currently we're not really paying for it currently it's just millions of animals suffering endlessly i totally and, agree uh, like with industrialized meat farming it's just a fucking nightmare mm. like do we really need super cheap meat from these like nightmarish places just to be able to like it's disgusting mm. in a way and you can taste it like mm. when you eat super cheap meat you can taste the sorrow and suffering <laughs> of that meat like it makes me just want to not eat meat yeah yeah but like i'm probably not going to go full vegetarian because like culturally and traditionally i just like a lot of the tastes and the dishes and food culture and stuff but god damn it it makes me want to do it incredibly rarely at least yeah, well, I think that's one of the things that a film like this can do, or, or the book as well. I think probably, although I don't have any, you know, um, statistics on it, probably this book was quite influential in terms of animal rights. He does attribute to Peter Singer, who's one of the, you know, initial... Famous animal yeah, ethics philosophers. Yeah, in the book, uh, Richard Adams. And for a lot of people, I think this was a way into, like, discussing and having an idea about um, rights of, you know, creatures who aren't human. Yeah. Yeah. And like the thing for me watching this is like, I know a lot of it, but I just choose not to engage with it because it is just so mm. 
depressing. Mm. It is so depressing to mm. think about. But, you know, that's what's so amazing with this film, because it has that element, but it's also really beautiful. It's really poetic. It's really touching. The voice work is so good. Yeah. John Hurt has this vulnerable, weak voice. You really connect with him very strongly. Yeah, it's so well acted. You mm. don't think about that it's humans mm. voicing these animals at all. The chemistry mm. and the way they act together is it flows so well. This movie f has an amazing flow mm. to it. And also just the, the sound quality of, of the voices. You know, I think this is one of my favorite examples of voice work in animation because it's it's very striking. It feels very uh, personal. In yeah, a way. very, very close, very personal, mm. very like intense in that way. Mm. Yeah, it, it feels very like um, vulnerable in a way. Yeah. And that's just adds that extra dimension of vulnerability and empathy mm. and understanding and closeness to the characters, mm. the animals. And, you know, a lot of very popular, you know, modern art, I should say modernist art, like Edward Munch or Van Gogh, has this kind of duality to it, like very sort of decorative, but very melancholic element. It kind of deals with these two opposing forces in a way that draws you to it in a very strong way. It's very beautiful, but it's very sad. Yeah, and it's beauty and suffering. Yeah. And the sort of push and pull between them and the beauty of suffering and the sort of intertwining of those two. I mean, they're in inexorably linked. Like mm. you don't have light without darkness. You don't have health without sickness. And there's a lot of ambiguity in that that I think appeals. And there's a lot of things in between the lines that you can read into or project yourself onto that is very efficient in terms of communicating difficult themes. And you mentioned a little bit in the beginning, these laboratories, those locations, how they're drawn and how they simulate the camera. Yeah. Merton Rosen has a very good sense of composition and use of camera movement. It's just very shape, striking. Shape and stuff. Like, yeah. Especially like initially when they just escape like the kennel room. Mm. They come into this room with like these gloves mm. for like manipulating animals and stuff. Mm. And the way it's portrayed, it's completely like objectified. Mm. You don't really see it. It's just these horrible shapes. Mm. And it's so well done. Like the sense of composition and mm. aesthetic of horror are just so on point. It's very it's... striking. It almost has a quality of like expressionist cinema. It has that kind of very striking, very clear totally. composition. Like sometimes it's just interspersed with shots of like these monkeys in yeah. tiny cages mm. and like rats like moving about mm. in these tiny enclosed spaces. And it feels very, very objectified, very disillusioned and, and lonely and, and horrible. And it does remind me of a lot of early expressionist cinema. Mm in the way the sort of the camera treats the objects or rather the subjects as objects on screen. Yeah, and it uses a lot of like foreground, middle ground, background and actually, you know, this this isn't a high production film and, and they use uh, some of these techniques that typically you might see more in like uh, 90s Japanese movies where they have background plates drawn and they're kind of just moving them across each other, yeah. which is a really nice effect, it's a parallax effect. Yeah, a lot of anime yeah. uses these techniques to sort of not hide the fact that they're low budget, but they are techniques you can use that look great even mm. with a low budget yeah. right 
Exactly. And, you know, Japanese anime is famous for stylizing that to a nth degree, but you don't see so much of it. I guess we're so used to Disney and stuff and they just have shit tons of money and they use less of those types of techniques. Yeah, I don't know. It's still mm. a good, mm. like the animation is mm. great and it's still a good looking movie. Like you it can looks... sort of see they don't have a triple A budget, obviously, but they work so well with what they have. It looks great. And like the textures of the surfaces are beautiful, like the metallic shapes and the tree roots and the rocks. Yeah, the art is great. It is beautifully painted. I do have a couple of minor gripes and probably if you're not really interested in anime, you wouldn't think of it. Anatomically, the dogs are very well drawn. They're correct. But occasionally, the perspective is a little bit off when they turn around and stuff. You can kind of see that their eyes aren't placed exactly as they should in terms of perspective. And it kind of feels like the animation team isn't at the zenith. Like, it's still really good. But I'm sure, like, an animation person would see that and, and think about it, at least. Yeah, I didn't think about it at all. So if you're a professional working in the field, mm. I'm sure you have, like... But at the same time, you have to understand the budget they're working with yeah. and, and stuff and time constraints and stuff. And I'm, it certainly, for me, doesn't detract from the movie. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, the one thing that does detract a little bit from the movie is actually some of the music. And I think you can generously call it of its time. Like some of it is good, like some atmospheric rumble and sort of stuff. Some of it is kind of like... There's some jazzy stuff going on. And in some of the more comedic sequences, mm. I think the music is a bit off. Yeah. And like the music isn't amazing. Like there's a lot of like marching sounds and like marching band music uh, in the more like dramatic sequences and stuff. It works. It works. It's not bad, but I found especially some of the comedic music a bit, I don't know, tonally weird. Well, that's just it. I mean, some of the, as you say, comedic or action scenes, it feels like they're using music kind of like it's more, you know, traditional Hollywood where the thought was we have to accentuate what's happening with the music to make it clear. Yeah. But the problem with for me is that the accentuation is totally inconsistent with both the sound design, the visuals and the themes. As you say, it's a bit jazzy. It's a bit... Yeah, I could do without the music in those sequences. I think it would be better. Yeah. I think it would be a lot better. But it's a minor gripe because it does feel very of its time and like if you had to have any concessions to like viewability at the time i think i would give that up as a director and rather have my ending or whatever oh yeah definitely <laughs> so it's it's yeah. not a major gripe at all but i totally hear you and understand mm. that aspect of it because i completely agree it should be said that like for this podcast i did a very close watch i've seen it before and you know it's, it's one of my favorite animation films because it's so bold and there's so few animation films that dare and you know films in general that can't take steps as this film does yeah it's uh, a bit of a rare creature this movie it really is and um, i really like it i do think it's an exceptional movie and actually i didn't discover it just a few years ago, I know I was familiar with Warship Down growing up and had seen that. And when I was told about this movie, I was kind of surprised that I hadn't heard of it. Because, like, thematically very interesting to me and Richard Adams and, and Warship Down. I, I would have thought it would be on my radar. But this film has more or less completely been, I don't know what you say, uncanonized? Like, removed I, from the discussion? I agree. I hadn't heard it until you recommended it for the podcast. And it's weird because, like you, like there's a lot of thematic elements I love. And I love Watership Down and saw that as a kid and have rewatched it again a couple of times as an mm. adult. I think it's a great movie. Mm. And it's like, why haven't I heard about this movie? Like it's sort of swept under the rug almost. Yeah. 
And apparently it sort of fucked his career up too. So, <laughs> I mean, people hate you when you tell the truth. Yeah, I would say like, if your career is going to consist of two films, Roger Down and Plague Dogs, that's pretty damn good. It's pretty fucking damn good. I mean, you can fucking call it quits there and you, you've done more than most directors will ever do. So by all means, but it's just sad we didn't get more of that caliber mm. animation. I'm curious, movie. I haven't read any more of Richard Dam's books, but I think he's Shardick books which are i think they're even more into this mythology stuff and they have even more like harsh themes i wonder what it would be like if martin rosen had made them as well right? yeah i mean it could have been like the anti-disney like really interesting you know imagine if he had like the opportunity that uh walt disney or hayao miyazaki had had to have his studio at yeah. the time that kind of built a culture god around. damn that would have been so great i feel like Almost like I know Tolkien, like one of his goals was to make elves treated seriously in a sort of literary sense. Yeah, again. not these diminutive... Uh... And, I f and I feel like Martin Rosen is sort of almost making us treat animals as creatures with their own dignity mm. in lives. Mm. And I feel That's like true. it's sort of a part of those projects that I feel are so incredibly cool. And I wish we had more of it. I wish we had that studio. We could have, could have used it. Yeah, because to me, it's just such a shame that animation as a expression is so rarely allowed to be grown up in a way like even a lot of serious stuff feel like they have to patronize to the audience i think you know subconsciously even you just think that these are the tropes of the medium and that's what we have to adhere to and you know there is a lot of great animation that doesn't do this and of course but it is it is difficult it's and difficult. it's difficult to get funding for these projects mm -hmm. and and a lot of it is just what's been made what's being made is so inside these sort of usual tropes of animation that like sometimes it's just difficult to think outside the box in general and when you have these sort of storytelling traditions in specific media you know the tendency is to keep doing it so there's actually two versions of this movie there's a uh, the shorter version that was shown in theaters and it was the most widely distributed yeah. and there was sort of a cut version that uh is about 17 minutes longer i think that's the version i watched the extended version yeah and it shows particularly one scene where after a hunter that is hunting them he's sort of pushed down this uh, hillside you see the helicopter fly by and you see that it looks like the dogs have eaten him mm. there's a couple of images here and there where you see like the corpses of sheep and also this guy they're quite graphic actually they you, are. you see like the bodies bloodied and torn up and stuff i think they should be there though i think they serve the movie yeah because it also feels very honest in a way it doesn't feel gratuitous i mean it feels realistic it feels consequential yeah. like that's the consequence of yeah. this stuff going on and you know the they're trying to survive and that's what death looks like and they're, they're eating these sheep and it's also it's harsh imagery but it's also beautiful like the, the colors and and uh, yeah the art uh like especially the sheep images mm. are like very well done even mm. though they're horrible um mm. this guy you see him just from above as you yeah, say yeah, he's actually quite small yeah. you, but you see it clearly yeah. you see his rib cage and stuff yeah. it's, it's quite shocking <laughs> yeah, it's quite shocking and the implication mm. of course is like mm. the dogs like they're starving so they they're gonna maybe grab a chunk or two while they're yeah but like that doesn't, they are starving. They are trying yeah. to survive. They're doing everything they can. Like, yeah. You wouldn't blame them any more than you would uh, like tales of people surviving airplane crashes and having to cannibalize people to survive. Survival isn't aesthetic. Mm. It's horrible. And you do have this transformation, as you said, like towards the end, they are very thin and starving. And towards the end, you kind of just want their suffering to mm. stop sort of realize there's no happy ending of course there is a happy ending in the book and that sort of negates everything 
I dislike that idea very much. But the movie is a masterpiece, in my opinion, yeah. and should be watched and talked about a lot more than it currently is. Yeah, and, uh, it deserves it. It deserves a place in people's consciousness. Yeah, it should be in the sort of canonical animation movie discussion, mm. certainly, and a great movie. So, Thomas, do you have a, a recommendation for us this fine evening? Yes, I do. And it's an animated short film by Igor Kovalyov. It's a Russian film called Hen, His Wife. And it's this surreal, ugly, weird, intense little film about like a man with blue skin and his wife who has the face of a hen and they have a dog who has a human face and centipede legs and it's like in their apartment and this guy shows up at the door, ostensibly his friend, and he kind of reveals to the blue-faced man that his wife is a hen. The animation is a little bit rough, the bodies are quite fatty, they're a bit wrinkly, it's very expressive, it's very humoristic. It's kind of reminiscent of a bit of, you know, the stuff that came out on Adult Swim a bit later, like Super Jail or King Star King. Not as graphic, but it's very playful. It's very funny. It's really weird and quite uncomfortable as well. Yeah, just the imagery is great. Like hands, they have like the nails are like claws. You can find the film on YouTube. Just search for Hen His Wife. It's, it's easy to find. It's really good. This guy, Kovalov, he's a really interesting guy. He also co-created Rugrats, actually. And oh, right, uh, right. he worked on stuff like Simpsons and Duckman. He, he's in the mainstream, basically. Yeah, he's done a bunch of amazing stuff. He had a career in Russia, came to America, did some stuff, and then I think he went back to Russia again. And he's done a bunch of shorts and stuff. I think this is the only one I've seen, and it might well be his most famous one. It's very striking and really fun. I really recommend checking out. It's just like 10 minutes, 30 minutes from 1990. Really fun, really weird, really horrible. That sounds truly amazing. And also sort of, it sounds like a caricature or what some American might think all European yeah. uh, animation is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it has that kind of, you know, Eastern European weirdness to it, but yeah. a lot more American surrealistic in a sense. And, um, yeah, because there's a lot of weird American animation too. So Definitely. It's kind of horror-like. It's great. Check it out. How about you, Svare? Do you have some nice recommendation for us? I'm excited. Yeah, I do. I've been completely addicted to this lately. Mm. I've been playing RimWorld. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it's, it's like this space colony storytelling simulator. Okay. Basically, you sort of crash land on a barren alien landscape. Mm. And you have to survive. You have to sort of build a colony. And the consequences of most stuff that happens is just completely awful. Like you get infections, <laughs> uh, random animals will go mad and start attacking you. There will be raiders that want to, you know, capture your slaves or just murder you. Is it like a survival game? No, not well, sort of. It's more in the vein of Dwarf Fortress. Okay. You're sort of running this colony. <laughs> and there's a lot of, just a lot of horrible stuff that goes on. Like there can be wild people that wander into sort of your area and they're treated as animals. You can sort of hunt <laughs> you can hunt them you can eat their flesh and you can make sort of lampshades out of their skin jesus or you can tame them make them become part of your sort of colony you can cannibalize and eat people but there's sort of consequences for everything you do like you can go stark mad because you do it if you don't have the sort of right mentality or aren't a psychopath 
Okay. Explain this. Your character can go mad. What does that mean? What kind of consequences does that have? Well, there's a lot of consequences. Like when they're at the breaking point, they might go into a fit, start attacking stuff, like destroying their room or whatever. They might attack people. They might stop eating. They might just go wander randomly into like dangerous areas of the map. But you have like a central character, like an avatar. Yeah, you have work? sort of your main character that you... St well, it depends on what you start with. Like normally you start with a colony of maybe three people. Okay, okay. And you sort of gather resources, start building stuff, start uh -huh. making defenses and uh -huh. stuff. The way I've played it, and I've only played it this way because I find it much more interesting. <laughs> okay. is I, I only play it as sort of a naked person with nothing. <laughs> you start with nothing. Oh, You're just one person. A waste of skin. Yeah. And you sort of, it's, it's much more brutal because you usually just die very early on from some incredibly stupid, like, there's these things called boom rats. And if you shoot them, they explode. Mm. And sometimes they go mad. And like when they go after you, that you're pretty much fucked in okay. an early game. <laughs> okay. But there's like lots of things that can harm you. There's, there's like crazy like insectoids and all sorts of fun stuff. You can get poisoned. Food poisoning is very common. You can get malaria. You, mm. you can get uh, infections. If you get a little scratch, you can get an infection and die. Like the good old days. Yeah. And you have to gather medicine or else you're fine. Like there's so many things to consider. And if you just like a momentary lapse of your attention and something will inexplicably go to hell. Like there was this one colony. It was, it was so horrible. I was in this sort of boreal forest, like northern Russia or Norway or Alaska or something. Mm. Like uh, very long and cold winters. And I was sort of, it was almost like this sort of ranch style. I had this guy with a cowboy hat and he was sort of, he was making do, he was, he was gathering resources. He was making this like big wooden ranch. And eventually he, he managed to like get some crewmates and stuff and things were going fairly well. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there crash landed this pod and had a person in it. And you can like choose to save people or whatever if they crash land near you. And I chose to do so. And I didn't like know the consequences of it because this person was a pyromaniac. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but they were a really good worker and like uh, they functioned well socially and stuff. And you can see people's interactions, like what they talk about, uh, how they get along, if they're friendly, if they don't like each other, they'll start like social fights and start biting each other and stuff. Uh, nice. But they got along really well. Eventually, now and then, they would start small fires. But you'd put them out and stuff, <laughs> okay. and it would work. Okay, okay. But, uh, but, like, eventually it got to a point where they started this major fire, and, like, the whole place was burning down. And I was, like, beyond my capacity. I had, like, accepted some, <laughs> some strangers in that needed help and stuff. So I didn't have enough food. I didn't have anything. People were at the breaking point. This fire started in this huge wooden, like, cabin. So it got beyond the point where I could do anything about it. Uh, and, like, the pyromaniac had gone into a pyromaniac state and was just, like, setting fires and couldn't do anything. <laughs> and so I tried to arrest her and stuff, and I did eventually arrest her, and I was so pissed off I, like, executed her. Uh, and then, like, afterwards, my pet squirrel had died. Like, two of my crewmates had, like, burned inside and oh, melted. Oh, no. So I was just left with this empty wreck of a ranch. And, like, one of my crew members and both at the breaking point. I was like, fuck this. I'm, I'm starting a new game. <laughs> what a story. Yeah, but it was it was so horrible. Like, I felt that. Because you like, you can read people's, like, stories. You have their mm -hmm. childhoods. Like, maybe they grew up, like, a scavenger child. And then you have their, like, what they did as an adult. Maybe they were a sheriff or something. Mm -hmm. So you, you sort of feel their characters. And they have character traits. Like, some, some people are nudists. They hate wearing clothes. And get like a negative bonus if you make them wear clothes, which they have to do if it's winter, right? So, Just yeah. like in real life. Yeah, but it's incredibly addictive. Like you don't notice how much time passes no. when you play it. So this is a bit of an older game, right? 
No, I think it released like a couple of years ago. Okay, but isn't there like a... Am I mixing it up with something else? I think it's been in like production for quite a while, but yeah. I don't think they released until a couple of years okay. ago. Okay, well, was it like an early access type thing? or Maybe, like a, I'm not actually sure about that. I've just been playing it. Okay. I haven't been reading much about but it. But is, is there like a top-down perspective? What's the, yeah, it's uh, top-down. It's like a traditional like uh, civilization or top-down sort of colony okay. settlement game. You. Do you like see individual characters? Yeah, you do, you do. Is it like a simple style? What's it like graphically? It's quite effective style. Like there's so much going on that you have to like check and read, but you can get a, like a quick overview just from watching it. Like it's not a beautiful art style, but it just works very well to convey what's going on. Like the character and stuff don't have legs. So you don't need leg animation or anything. You just see them like moving about. The mm, I see. Uh, and it works well. I like it. You can see like people's different hairstyles and stuff. So yeah, that's my recommendation. It's absolutely horrible. Everything you do will have horrible consequences. Especially if, like you can you can really choose how you play it too because you choose sort of the game master of the game and you can choose between like this nice person who <laughs> will let you breathe and like not throw horrible shit at you and then you have this game master that I've always chosen. He's called Johnny Random, I think. And he ju he will just throw anything at you. Like good stuff, bad stuff. Oh wow. Sometimes like if everything's gone horribly wrong, there will be like this mysterious stranger that joins your clan and helps you out which happened to me uh with my latest colony which still haven't gone to hell and <laughs> it's going to happen we'll see oh, that sounds like real fun sweater i've kind of been aware of it in the periphery I'm not quite sure what it was yeah but it sounds crazy it is absolutely brilliant and I've always been a fan of Dwarf Fortress, so I've known about this game for quite a while because it's sort of known as a more accessible way of approaching that game genre. And I always thought it was a bit simplified, but right now it's very, very complex and very interesting. In a lot of ways, it does a lot of things a lot better than Dwarf Fortress. Like, it's very accessible to play and mm -hmm. it works very well. It doesn't require a lot of processing like Dwarf Fortress. It's just a really good game and I mm -hmm. totally recommend it. Well, thanks. That's great. So, um, for the next episode, we're going to be talking about a film called La Casa Lubus, or Wolf House. And if you hadn't heard of it, that's not so strange, because it's not a widely seen film. It's made by two Chilean artists, and it's this stop-motion animated film, kind of like a dark fairy tale. It's absolutely beautiful. I heartily recommend checking this film out. I expect you might be able to find it on Vimeo or something. However you find it, because I'm expecting most of our listeners not having seen it before. It's just an amazingly interesting film to watch. It's so beautiful. And I think we're going to have a really interesting discussion about it in the next episode. So Wolf House from 2018. So fairly recent animation. Yeah. And if you want to get in touch with us, please send us an email at unpleasantmovies at protonmail.com. You can also check out our Instagram, where we put out some artwork and uh, we have uh, occasional quizzes where you kind of guess what movie it is based on the still frame. And music for this episode is by Umulium. That's Juskarning and Sverre Ogor. I'm Thomas simpson Balmbra. I do the artwork for the podcasts. Yes, you do. And uh, with that, I think we will say goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.